Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hello and welcome to the new edition of TLS Voices. My name is Stig Abel, editor of the Times Literary Supplement. I'm joined as ever by commissioning editor and ineluctable northerner Thea Lenardutzi and Thea I've got to tell you that no one has responded to me at Stig Abel if you want to try to dig up dirt on you. But I tell you, we are we are thick as thieves here at the TLS. They've my editors, the, my is, colleagues have my back. This is not just from the TLS. I'm opening it out to the entire uh, audience of this podcast for any anecdotes about you. Can I speak to your husband? <laughs> Absolutely not. OK, fair enough. Hard but fair. If you're listening to and do not subscribe to the TLS, here is an offer for you. Just Google TLS subscriptions, click on the page and type pod one into the offer code bit. You can get six issues for just six pounds. And I should remind you, if you want to support this podcast, which after next week, Thea, we promise is going to look and sound rather different. It really, really is. Exactly. Please do review us on iTunes too. We really do value that. Coming up on this week's show, as part of our bumper spring books issue, all 52 pages of it, Jonathan Barnes has looked at the world of modern science fiction through the prism of a newly penned sequel to The War of the Worlds by H.G. Wells. Are we living through science fictional times and do we need a new satirical wells for our age. Thea has been, not uncommonly for her, wandering in and out of the office and her peregrinations have taken her to the British Museum to see the exhibition entitled The American Dream, a collection of prints commemorating six decades of American history. Thea has been talking to the curator and will tell us more about it. And finally, arguably the most exciting fiction release of the year so far is Lincoln in the Bardo by hip American writer George Saunders. To market, our fiction editor, whom I'm not allowed to call an Eamon McBride fanboy, Toby Lichtig, has interviewed Saunders. We are running an extract of the book in the paper and also have an audio version of it, which is quite a special thing. Toby's full interview will run as a separate podcast, but he's in the studio to tell us more about Saunders and his novel. So under science fiction, it has become clear, says Jonathan Barnes, that we are living in science fictional times, a time of hyperconnectivity and mass automation, of heady tech highs and more apparent miserable lows. A sort of dystopia where my LBC colleague Nigel Farage, according to Barnes, assails the airwaves in the manner of some dystopian spiv from the comic strip 2000 AD. And in America, a smirking millionaire shambles to his inauguration podium like a cross between a resident of H.P. Lovecraft's Innsmouth and Stephen King's Randall Flagg, that rabble-rousing demagogue whose arrival in the stand coincides 
with the apocalypse. In such a world, what is the role of science fiction? And what is the point of a new sequel to The War of the Worlds by H.G. Wells, entitled The Massacre of Mankind? The original book was, among other things, a satire on colonialism and the will to power. It was less prophetic than caustically contemporary. Do we need something similar now? Well, to answer those and any other questions we can think of is Jonathan Barnes, who wrote the lead piece in the paper this week, and very good it is too, and joins us now. Jonathan, hello. Hello. Uh, Before we career to the present, should we talk a bit about the War of the Worlds? Why was it such an influential kind of epochal book? I mean, and how much do we... We might get onto whether we blame Orson Welles for that as well, but as a piece of literature itself, why was it such a such an influential book do you think well it is as i suggest in the article i mean it is the foundation stone really of the alien invasion genre part of a a wider genre at the time of invasion stories fantasies about england being invaded and colonized and taken over so it fits into that but it also by adding this kind of extraterrestrial quality creates something brand new it's also i'd say on top of that extremely well written why was invasion literature so prevalent at the time then what was the what's the underlying social reason why this became an interesting thing i think the answer hopefully without being too trite is quite clear because you have the british empire absolutely at its acme at that point and when you get an empire that big and that powerful and that successful it becomes paranoid doesn't it, it becomes fearful of its own decline and downfall and also that you know what they have done to other countries other colonies you know will in turn be done to us and you quote it where he says, talk about uh, Wells's strange sympathy towards the extraterrestrial invaders. Before we judge of them too harshly, we must remember what ruthless and utter destruction our own species has wrought not only upon animals such as the vanished bison and the dodo, but upon its own inferior races. The Tasmanians, in spite of their human likeness, were entirely swept out of existence in a war of extermination waged by European immigrants. I mean, you talk about Wells the satirist. Where's his politics lie on this? Oh, I think you read those novels today they still seem very very fresh and contemporary but they absolutely burn with anger all of them and kind of you know powered by this fueled by this sort of righteous fury at all the inequalities and injustices he saw in the world many of which are uh, are still with us today interestingly enough Stephen Baxter who has written the sequel he has to a degree at least continued that satirical and quite coruscating attack on 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 us so there's that bit that you mentioned where he um, he, he writes about migrants from West London pointedly being very, very well received and take, taken care of by, by British soldiers and the British people. Absolutely, yeah. There's an element of that to the Baxter sequel. There's an element of satire. I suppose it's, you know, it's quite a hard book to kind of judge fairly because whereas The War of the Worlds looks ahead into the future and is a, a work of, of futurism, this is by its nature you know, a work of nostalgia. It's set a few years after the original book, isn't it? Rather than, as you say, yeah. I mean, the War of the Worlds is set some years after its publication. Um, Early in the twentieth century came the Great Disillusionment and all of that stuff. And Baxter gets um, carried away. I think forgivably carried away with building this kind of alternative past. That sounds quite fun, though. I love a bit of that when real people pop up in books, and so there's a, a clever corporal that looks very much like Hitler, and um, that real H.G. Wells himself pops up, doesn't he, in, in the book? Is yes, right? yes, several times. Um, so, is it knowing? Is it Archer knowing uh, as a as a sequel? Because I'm kind of interested. What's the point of these sort of approved sequels? Because you get them in lots of great ways. There, there was a sequel to Robert Parker wrote one uh, to um, The Big Sleep. Um, which was kind of, as another genre novel, great 
epochal genre novel and they got a, a writer in the present time to, to, to do a sequel to it. And, and it there's kind all of, the Sherlock Holmes Yeah, kind it, of it kind of feels a bit otios. I mean, does this get past that, do you think? Is this what, What's the value in this piece, I guess? And the James Bond sequels yeah. as well. That, that but they're never any good, it. though, are they? Oh, I would... <laughs> I think William Boyd's Bond novel is the best thing he's done for... Really, is, but maybe we should take that offline. No, no, we're right. Come on. <laughs> we might go to other examples of this, but, but genre fiction does allow this generally, doesn't it? Because there's a formula, there's a, a recognisable set of characters, sometimes a, a you know a series of books that precedes it that allows someone to take the furniture and rearrange it in another book. When you read this, do you think this was worth doing? This is this is filling a need somewhere. I think the best of this kind of fiction reframes the original in some way, um, so that we can see it slightly differently i mean the best example and what pastiche writer i guess you know aims for is wide sargasso see yeah and that became a great piece of literature in its own right and it makes you reflect on the original did your opinion of war of the worlds change as a result of reading the massacre of mankind i don't think you can bracket it with best will in the world with the wide sargasso sea it extrapolates it but it doesn't i think doesn't reframe it in a way that is going to survive on its own as a as a as a piece of literature in its own right and is it hard enough then because you you sort of conclude your piece by saying what is needed now is a new wells a writer with the ability to cloak their righteous anger in the garb of popular fiction a means by which the worldview of an ever more isolationist rapacious anti-education right might be counteracted i want to talk about that more broadly in a moment but what this book isn't then is a hard-hitting angry satire in the mode of the war of the world this is something that has more curiosity than 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 passion perhaps connected to it yeah there are flashes of that as i you know we talked about the refugee element you know there are digs at um kind of half half recognizable contemporary political boris johnson boris johnson is um i think certainly the inspiration for the um slightly buffoonish near dictator of britain brian marvin that's right yes and the protagonist in in this um this sequel is is a woman who was a minor character in in the original yes and baxter writes in the voice of this kind of suffragette mm. woman i said a moment ago that often the appeal of this kind of fiction these kind of belated sequels is to spend more time with the characters but that's probably not true of wells because his characters are to a man and woman you know a pretty selfish at best pretty venal figure so he has to really kind of um really embroider and extrapolate this figure to make her a kind of um plucky heroine but the more he does that you know perhaps the less wellsian it feels and is is baxter's outlook more more positive than uh, more optimistic than than wells's or are they quite well matched there because you say in, in in your piece you know and it's pretty clear that wells was a pessimist about our role in the world, shall we say. So, I mean, is, is does Baxter kind of keep it in that vein? No, I mean, you know, there were flashes of satire, but overall it's a gentler proposition than the original novel. But, you know, Wells is extraordinarily fatalistic about the, the future of humanity. I say in the piece, that extraordinary end of the time machine, yeah, which is such a bleak fate. For, well, shall I quote it? In the growing pile of civilization, only a foolish heaping that must inevitably fall back upon and destroy its makers... In the end, I just want to go back to that point—the idea that a new Wells could rise. Do you, do you actually do you believe the power of popular literature is such that that becomes a a valid counteraction to a political orthodoxy, which you might say is developing in the course of Western Europe and the United States? Do you think that's a role for literature, or are you overstating the, the possibilities there? No, I don't think I'm, I'm understating them. If if anything, um, yes, of course. I mean, that's how we make sense of the 
the world, and particularly how we make sense of ex- extreme events in the world, is um, you know through using the tools of um, you know particularly fantastic literature. I mean, how to deal with Donald Trump in fiction? We're going to need something more than straight realism to make sense of it. I think you only need to look at say you know House of Cards on television is outstripped. Yeah, or satire. By the reality. I mean, satire yeah. generally is you know the thick of it in Britain now looks kind of quaint sometimes mm. when, when you compare to, to how, how, how the Brexit campaign was connected. We've talked about this a couple of times. We had a Russian Revolution special where there was a big thing on Russian literature. How do you deal with the Russian Revolution as it's happening? And, and the way that, that a lot of the Russians did was to go into fable, to go into sort of almost religious ecstatic writing because you, you, were, you were reflecting something in a way that you couldn't in, in realism. I wonder whether there is in sort of Western transatlantic culture such a strong tradition of 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 that i mean how would because is it possible to to do trump in a non-awful cliched way well you you mentioned the the fun house mirror rather than the straightforward mirror which seems as good a chance as as any that we may have is there anyone you have in mind when you think of someone who can rise up to do this type of fictional writing bear this burden is there anyone who you think currently is is out there I don't have a short list. No, no, <laughs> no but... come on. <laughs> yeah, good prize that, wouldn't it? The HG uh, Wells Prize for holding a funhouse mirror up to reality. <laughs> but I think it must be inevitable. Maybe it will be in literature. Maybe it will be in different forms. Maybe it will be in television. Maybe it will be in movies. Very good movie out next week called Get Out, which takes the the horror form with a, a dash of Lovecraft actually and deals with huge questions of, of race and class in America. But that's well. That's fascinating. And listen, John, it's, it's a great piece. And uh, you know, you start by saying uh, it's clear that we are living through science fictional times. And I think you, you make the case uh, very strongly for this. And you've kind of tempted me into reading this this sequel as well. I think you're, despite it not being fully Wellsian, it, it seems like it was worth worth the time for it. Absolutely, lovely, Jonathan Barnes. Thank you so much. Thank you. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Next, by way of a new exhibition opening today at the British Museum, we'll take a look at the making and breaking of another civilization, and a decidedly less ancient one than you might expect at the British Museum. 
The museum, it turns out, has an extraordinary hoard of modern American print spanning six decades worth of US history, from the mid-1950s boom times through a string of dramatic presidencies, the civil rights movement, 9-11 and the financial crisis of 2008. And it brings us more or less up to date in, well, no less turbulent times. The exhibition, which I'm assured was organised well in advance of last November's elections, is called The American Dream, and it carries with it all the many and fragmented resonances of that term. So across 200 works, 70 artists use lithography and screen printing, processes that were more commonly linked then with mass manufacturing and marketing than with art, to capture their moment and vision. Among them are the usual suspects, Warhol, Lichtenstein and Rosenquist, as well as plenty of works by lesser-known artists. I went along to meet one of the exhibition's curators, Stephen Koppel, to zigzag through some of the key works. We started in 1973 with Jasper John's Flags One. The flag was an instantly recognisable symbol. It was, you, Of course, you see it fluttering from the public buildings, you see it in every classroom and so forth. But he looked at it and he wanted us to look at it anew. What he does in printmaking is explore the possibilities of reversal, doubling, working in series, and so on. And in this case, we have here two downward-pointing flags. If you look closely, you come, you see that there are a lot of marks, suggesting at the bottom of each of the red stripes, perhaps strips, Mm. Are they a reference to abstract expressionism? Well, it certainly looks very painterly, doesn't it? He seems to be using a lot of the techniques that you might associate with a more painterly approach to Yes, to he does. But if you look again more closely, is the flag bleeding? Is he making a comment about a wounded America? He doesn't reveal that. He is completely detached. If you look even cl- more closely, you'll see that the flag itself... It's not just red, blue and white, but also you'll see green emerging. Especially on the, um, the right-hand flag there, there's a sort of yellowing of the white as well, of the white stripes. Yes, and there again he's playing on our perception, because on the left-hand side it's built up entirely from matte-coloured inks, so it's flat ink and the build-up of those inks. And on the, the right-hand side, that yellow hue that you see is in fact the layering of a gloss varnish. So he's asking you to look at the difference between the matte and the gloss. Mm. Always he's playing on our perception of what we see in front Mm. of us. And you can't help but feel that it is somehow politically loaded, the idea of a glossed version of the American flag. (laughs) A varnished (laughs) America. (laughs) I'm sure we read far too much into these things. I mean, one of the other key aspects of, of all of these works, really, is that although there were very many titans, and we're about to, to look at one of them now, it was, it was a collaborative thing. I mean, there was a lot of collective work going on and workshopping and, and, and sharing of, yes. of technical Absolutely. ideas. Absolutely. We're now standing in front of this monumental print by Robert Rauschenberg called Sky Garden. It was made in 1969 and part of a big project celebrating... America's achievement of landing man on the moon for the first time. So that's Apollo 11 there? Yes, it's Apollo 11, and what we see is this, the ferocious blast of the Saturn V launcher from Cape Kennedy, as it was then called, Cape Canaveral now, in Florida. And Rauschenberg was invited by NASA to witness the launch. So he was there for several days before the launch, 
He collected photographs, he took photographs, and then he went to the West Coast to work at the print workshop of Gemini, and working with the master printer Ken Tyler, produced this extraordinary series of 33 lithographs, of which this, Sky Garden, is the largest, in about two months. And the artist and the printers were working around the clock to make this extraordinary series. And just, just to describe what we see here, so we've got Apollo 11 in the middle and then you've got the huge explosion of red that kind of emanates from that and covers probably two-thirds of the height of the thing and yes. it's 2.2 metres tall. Yes. And then in the right-hand corner we have a, a wading bird of, of some description. I'm not, not good with birds. <laughs> well, it's a, bird a Floridian from, bird. <laughs> yes, well, it, it's very much a, a wading bird from the Everglades because, I mean, Cape Kennedy was surrounded by, mar- by marshland. And so there, there they are, these birds. And one of the things that Rauschenberg noted was where these birds f- are flying around near the rocket. I mean, there was this wonderful conflation of the bird and the rocket. And indeed, as you point out, the wading bird that we see in the upper right, overlaying it is a footprint of one of the astronauts, Buzz Aldrin, one of the footprints that from his... Uh, moonwalk and so you've got this combination of both the lunar and the terrestrial the earthbound and the sense of space the the exploration and And, so forth and now what we're looking at it's it's made in california by ed ruscha from 1971 and it's it's quite different to the quite complicated narratives and overlays that we got in rauschenberg it's very pared back and minimal almost well, we're looking in front of a work by Ed Richer called Made in California. That is the title of the work, and that is, in, in fact, what you see. It's in brilliant golden ochre, this orange which glows, uh, suggesting the sunshine of California, the perpetual sunshine, the oranges of the, of the state, and the lettering Made in California, which was created by lithography, it looks, it looks like it's written in orange juice. It looks so orange juicy. Juice. It's like drops of squeezed orange juice dripping. And this is characteristic of Ed Richer's work. It's so deadpan, it's witty, it's detached. And it's so funny. He's really forcing us to focus on the words as well. That's, that, that was something that he really yeah. owned. Well, word as image you associate really with with Ed Rocher. So they have words, have this visual presence, words that he's picked up from billboards, from advertising, from things that he's observed as he's often driving around um, LA. And of course, Made in California may even be a reference to Rocher himself. A he sort of self-portrait. Self-portrait, because uh, Rocher was brought up in Oklahoma City and at the age of 18, he travels west to L.A., and he never went back. He went back to visit his family, of course, along Route 66. But it was in L.A., in California, that he made his name. Now, the, the next work that we're coming up to is by May Stevens, and this is more overtly political. I mean, there's no, there's no saying this one isn't political. Big Daddy with Hats, 1971. Yes, here we have this figure of authority, Big Daddy, which was inspired by May Stevens' own father, with whom she never got on. And you see him na- seated naked with this very smug expression on his face. 
he represents everything about the complacent middle America. Surrounding the figure of Big Daddy are these hats, symbols of authority. So we see the riot cop's hat, the policeman's helmet. We see the executioner's hood and the Ku Klux Klan's cloak. And alongside each of these hats, these symbols of authority, are these tabs, like for paper dolls. So you could Mm. essentially cut them out, she's suggesting, Mm. and affix them over the head of the big daddy, this naked big daddy figure, and there you have this symbol of authority. It's it's notable that big daddy's head is in fact very, very small. It's, is that sort of a reflection of the, the small-mindedness of, of, of the patriarchy? Well, you could say that, or you could look at the form of that head, which is very phallic. phallic. <laughs> um, it looks like it's a head with a condom stretched over it. Um, and in the foreground, on his lap, is this really ugly, brutal-looking uh, dog, his pet. It's a British um, bulldog. With a protruding tongue, around its stomach is uh, a patriotic vest of the American mm. flag. Just um, holding back the rolls of fat. <laughs> <laughs> so May Stevens, second-wave feminist artist, very much involved with the civil rights movement in the early 60s, uh, made this print in 1971 from a series of works featuring this figure called Big Daddy, which appears in her prints, her drawings. In fact, there's a drawing alongside uh, called Reversal, in which the roles of those two figures, the dog and the Big Daddy, are are reversed. That's quite grotesque, isn't Mm. it? I think we're coming to our final work now. Well, we're now coming to a work made in 1995 by the African-American artist Emma Amos. Uh, It's called Stars and Stripes. And it was done in monotype, so each work is slightly different. Um, what it shows is the American flag, but instead of the, the stars in the upper left corner, we see a photograph uh, in blue from the Depression era, and it shows an African-American family, poor, staring up at, rather sullenly at the camera. And this photograph was from a series taken by a family friend that Emma Amos uh, incorporates in her work. And the stripes themselves, there's a quite aggressive kind of cross through them there, yes. a smudged cross. There's, there's, it looks like a cancellation mark, mm. this cross. This sort of, so we don't see any of the stars, and then the, the stripes themselves have been cancelled out with this very deliberate cross mark. And so really we've come full circle from the Jasper Johns, and... While Jasper Johns was reluctant to define himself politically, these are everyday objects and I'm asking you to look at them anew as I'm looking at them anew. Emma Amos is... Making a a very strong uh, political point. She doesn't disguise her feelings. It's fascinating, that fear, and I think one of the great virtues of of that conversation I'm about to ruin now, why, of course, (laughs) you, you, you studiously managed to have those conversations without mentioning the current American political landscape. Mm -hmm. There's no mention of he who shall not be named as one of our reviewers uh, once referred to Donald (laughs) Trump, but it's called an American dream. It's, it's, it's clearly political. It's about artists responding to a political climate. We've just at the beginning of this podcast talked about how fiction might respond to the political climate. How much of the current political state in America 
do you have in your mind when you're looking at or do you divorce this and think this is a, essentially a historical exhibition of the last 60 years of America? Well, it is. It is clearly a historical exhibition. And, and as I said in my introduction, this was this was organised well before what, what happened has, you know, had happened. But it's impossible not to look at things without bringing your own gloss to them. I mean, this this would have been interesting even if we had got a president who we were all absolutely thrilled with. And it's about how America regards itself, isn't it? Yeah, and how and how fragmented it is because you could compare Rauschenberg's uh, Sky Garden lithograph that we were discussing there. Uh, you could compare that and, and the kind of the euphoria of that. And, and I was I was reading it in, in terms of well, perhaps isn't it strange? Don't you think it's slightly aggressive that uh, you know Boz Aldrin's footprint is is covering the wading bird is that really harmonious but Stephen was 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 very keen to point out that it was euphoric and a celebration of 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 technology or or science and nature's uh, harmonious union you can compare that to the later works like Emma Amos's ones and and the 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 view of of American possibility is is a much more negative possibility than than um than a positive one. And I wonder when, in 20 years' time, they update that ex- exhibition, well, what precisely will be contained in, in it? In, interestingly enough, a, a lot of the people who, who are in that exhibition are very, very much still working. Uh, even Ed Ruscha, who's been going for, for many, many years, who, who's made in California, we discussed, um, and whose career has got increasingly political, I would say. He's, he's made posters uh, with with the tagline "Nothing to pay till April" and another Hollywood dream bubble popped, um, and he was a key figure in making language, the actual words, the centre of the work. And he's still working. I mean, I, I'm definitely going to be going back because it was such a whistle stop tour, and, and I, there's so many riches. Um, well, let's move on from the American dream then to a reimagination of American history. George Saunders's first novel, Lincoln in the Bardo, is causing all sorts of transatlantic excitement at the moment. When I spoke to Michael Chabon for this podcast, he was raving about it as the most interesting novel we will see this year. It relates to a time, February 1862, when Abraham Lincoln's 11-year-old son, Willie, died of typhoid fever. Lincoln was, according to contemporary reports, seen visiting the crypt alone at the dead of night. And much of the book is set in this graveyard on that night and consists of conversations of various dead bodies there. The remainder contains excerpts, real and imagined, of newspaper and biographical sources telling the story of Lincoln's grief and its effect on the war. Bardo is, by the way, a Buddhist term for the transitional state between death and rebirth, a state occupied by Willie and the other graveyard wraiths. TLS Fiction Editor Toby Lichtig has interviewed George Saunders, which will run as a separate podcast to accompany our full audio extract. So we're giving you a lot of Saunders. We're going to give you an audio extract and an interview with him, and that'll be on a separate podcast. But Toby has joined us now in the studio to talk more about the book and the Saunders phenomenon. But first, let's hear a short clip from the scene in which the ghostly figures are talking. An exceedingly tall and unkempt fellow was making his way toward us through the darkness. This was highly irregular. It was after hours. The front gate would be locked. The boy had been delivered only that day. That is to say... The man had most likely been here. Quite recently. That afternoon. Highly irregular. The gentleman seemed lost. Several times he stopped, looked about, retraced his steps, reversed course. He was softly sobbing. He was not sobbing. My friend remembers incorrectly. He was winded. He did not sob. 
He was softly sobbing, his sadness aggravated by his mounting frustration at being lost. He moved stiffly, all elbows and knees. Bursting out of the doorway, the lad took off running toward the man, a look of joy on his face. Which turned to consternation when the man failed to sweep him up in his arms as, one gathered, must have been their custom. The boy, instead, passing through the man as the man continued to walk toward the white stone home, sobbing. He was not sobbing. He was very much under control and moved with great dignity and certainty of... He was fifteen yards away now, headed directly toward us. The reverend suggested we yield the path. The reverend having strong feelings about the impropriety of allowing oneself to be passed through. The man reached the white stone home and let himself in with a key, the lad then following him in. Mr. Bevins, Mr. Volman, and I, concerned for the boy's welfare, moved into the doorway. The man then did something. I do not quite know how to... He was a large fellow, quite strong, apparently, strong enough to be able to slide the boy's... Sick box. The man slid the box out of the slot in the wall and set it down upon the floor. And opened it. Kneeling before the box, the man looked down upon that which... He looked down upon the lad's prone form in the sick box. Yes. At which point he sobbed. He had been sobbing all along. He emitted a single heart-rending sob. Or, or gasp. I, I heard it as more of a gasp, a gasp of recognition. Of recollection. Of suddenly remembering what had been lost and touched the face and hair fondly. As no doubt he had many times done when the boy was... Less sick. A gasp of recognition, as if to say, Here he is again, my child, just as he was. I have found him again, he who was so dear to me. Who was still so dear. Yes. The loss having been quite recent. The voices there of Nick Offerman and David Sedaris, among others. Uh, Toby, just listening to it and then reading, I read this a couple of um, months ago, I suppose now. It's extraordinarily inventive, startling stuff. Before we get into the book itself, where's this all come from? What's George Saunders' literary background, I suppose? His own background. I mean, George Saunders is primarily known as a writer of short stories. So I think he came to fiction writing relatively late. He trained as an engineer, which might account for some of the more uh, fantastical science fiction elements of his work. And he started writing stories, I think, in his late 20s, published his first collection of stories in the mid-90s. It was called Civil Warland, and has been writing bits of journalism and short stories ever since. Uh, This is his first novel, however, which partly um, accounts for some of the excitement about it. You know, he's he's fairly well known as a New Yorker writer. A lot of his uh, stories have appeared there, but um, yeah, he's big in America compared to he's huge. Yeah, yeah, he's huge in America. I mean, it's it's partly that thing that in the states, short stories are treated with slightly more veneration than they are here, and you know, they have a magazine like the New Yorker that will publish stories there. So he's very well known over there. His his um books have sold here and he won the folio prize um the inaugural folio prize which i think was in 2013 that was for his collection 10th of december which was his last book so so he was i think he's been well known here since then but but um you know that that was relatively recently and lincoln and the bardo that started many 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 years ago decades ago two decades ago uh, so when he probably just started uh, started writing fiction he saw he drove past the crypt and then later heard the story uh, about how 
Lincoln had been visiting his son there and he started off with that image and he, he said that image itself was, had haunted him and he'd always wanted to do something with it but had never quite worked out what until quite recently. And it's trying, I mean, uh, our reviewer, uh, Nat Segnet, who's reviewed the piece in the paper, calls uh, Saunders a comic ballad, which I thought was, was interesting in that, that sort of combination of strangeness and, un- and uneasy humour, which you associate with that. I can kind of see that, the kind of... I kind of because even listening to that, it's it's slightly uncomfortable, it's slightly odd. When you read it set on the page, it's very unfamiliar. It's destabilising. Everything it's destabilising. Yeah, um, uh, our review in that segment also referred to um, Kurt Vonnegut, which is probably a slightly better comparison because you know Vonnegut's got the comedy in it, and it's that it's that kind of blend of sci-fi with real life stuff. I mean, it's uh, it's difficult with genre definitions, isn't it? You know, no one would dare call Ballard a kind of genre writer, but what makes him not a science fiction writer? Well, maybe some people would, I don't know. But it's that, that, that idea as well that, you know, Saunders is a literary writer who uses science fiction. Um, I don't think we should get too hung up about genre categories myself. And it's, it's interesting as well that when you think of George Saunders' short stories, one of the things that always stands out about them, the way he writes, is... is the phenomenal ease with which he transitions from one voice to the next. He has this amazing capacity to, to embody a voice. Absolutely. Um, and, and what he's done in this book is to, to split the voice up into however, you know, 166 well, It's almost like a stage play and you, and, you, and you read it and the way it's set out, you get the kind of, you get the voice first and then the attribution later, whereas obviously if you're reading a play, you get the, who's speaking first. But it's, it's almost set out like that and it's, there's something very kind of theatrical it's about choral, it. It's choral almost, isn't it? It is choral. Because, it's a choral or a cacophony, if you, if you would prefer to call it something different. Yeah, it, it absolutely is. Because even as you and, listen to that, that what was beautiful when we heard it, and, and actually we'll talk about the audiobook shortly, but... There's this notion of point and counterpoint, and, and even though those voices are arguing with one another and squabbling, actually the, the net effect of it is sort of smoothed out as if in a chord, isn't it? You kind of you, you, there's there's in, yeah there's individual points of of distinction, but it comes across as one smooth yet unsettling whole. Absolutely, and that's actually thematically very important because the, these these individual individual um, elements, these individual ghosts, basically all come together to perform an act of goodness later on in the book, which I won't give away. But so the kind of the form mirrors. The, uh, the theme there. Can you think of a time when, because I said that, 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 that we just heard some of the audio, but it's, it's got some proper actors playing it. There's Julianna Moore, there's Ben Stiller, there's Jake Gyllenhaal. Susan Sarandon. Can you think of a time in which a book's come out where the audio book has been almost regarded as it similarly important or as part of the whole in the way this seems to have done a sort of work of art in its yeah, own right I, I don't think i don't think i can i can't think of similarly choral works that have had such kind of stellar casts in and i know i mean i know audiobooks are doing fairly well at the moment people like listening to them no i can't actually is this the future i just wonder just thinking about this is this a kind of the future where it's just interesting that we're extracting something in the paper and we've we've extracted the audio as well and i just wonder whether or is he just so kind of hip and this is such a hip book. I think that... he's got lots of hip mates who are quite happy to pile <laughs> in on this, which is absolutely no bad thing at all. But... It does set a precedent, though. Yeah. And you can, you can well see you know, the big novels being turned into these kind of audio, almost cinematic events. 
But, yeah, and particularly if they've got a theatrical element. Yeah. Um, you know, I could imagine this being a stage play one day, so all the more reason that it would work well mm. as an audio book. How big a book is this, just taking it for its purely literary merits? Because there is an aspect of genre of fiction. I think you're not wrong to sort of reflect that on him, and, and you talk about Ballard and Vonnegut. They are genre, they're genre writers. There's, yeah, I mean, there's, you, can, you can endlessly argue about whether they are or not. But there's, there's but, a certain amount of sort of genre heft to them, isn't there? Yes. Uh, uh, where, what do you think of this book, Toby? Where, where do you think this will be this year? Is this an important oh, I think book? It's, I, think it's, I think it's one of the biggest books this year. I mean, I think for noise alone it is, before it's even you know landed on people's bookshelves, I think it's very, very good um i think it's extremely funny which helps um i i absolutely love the whole conceit about so you've got these these spirits in the bardo in this kind of limbo world who are basically in denial about the fact they're dead so they refer to their coffins as sick boxes they refer to being dead as being or being alive as being less sick and that's just a br- absolutely brilliant conceit and it's played very very well and then interspersed with all these um conversations with the spirit there are bits of history sort of culled from historical books some real some not which kind of form this mosaic and I think it's done very very effectively and one of the things I enjoyed talking to George Saunders about when when I interviewed him was he talked about the effect of the civil war on American society and although it's very much you know set in 1862 it's about the civil war but it's also about America and it's about today's America and about how America hasn't really got over the civil war and without taking this into Trump territory you know we are definitely dealing with those effects to this and day, it, and you talk about frag, frag, what struck me is just in the course of this uh, podcast, the, the fragments dream. of the American dream, and this is very much a, a, a book about fragments as well. Well, this this it makes me think very much of of the wasteland and T. S. Eliot writing it in, in the wake of the First World War and, and shoring the fragments and, and that mixture of real and false uh, footnotes and the kind of the, the humour and the, the seriousness of, of the material at the same time. Absolutely, and sort of juxtaposing those things together. So, the, yeah, exactly, the, the whole thing is made up as a series of attributions. You know, people aren't speaking, they're being, even even in this kind of core work, they are being attributed the way it's set out. So The danger yes. here, which it sounds like he's avoided, is this, it sounds impossibly tricksy. As a con- you can imagine pitching this to, to sort of say, oh, and there'll be some, there'll be some fake uh, sources, and there'll be some real, and I'm playing with ideas of authenticity and integrity. It, it could, in the wrong hands, be extraordinarily navel gazing and, and tricksy. And it sounds to me that there's a kind of integrity within it that stops that happening. There absolutely is an, an integrity, and I think it's something to do actually with the casualness of it. So, um, uh, I think our, our reviewer Nat referred to his nonchalant supernaturalism. And I, and I think it, that, that's a really good way of putting it. I mean, when I spoke to George Saunders, he was saying he didn't even decide to devise it as a ghost story to start with. He thought, right, OK, I, I, want, I want this scene with Lincoln in the graveyard with his dead son, Willie. Who's going to narrate it? I don't want Lincoln to narrate it because then it's, you know, you're, you're dealing with first-person problems. Well, who else is in a graveyard at night? And he sort of deals with those problems in a very kind of logical way. So I th- don't think he's doing it to be tricksy. It's almost like he's... It's a pragmatism. It's a pragmatism, exactly. And he's kind of using, he's sort of using his, the bottomless well of his imagination to solve problems, which is what fiction writers do, isn't it? You know, you're constantly solving problems. So I don't think he's setting out from a position of, hey, what can I do that's, you know silly and fun and tricksy and whatever when we talked to Michael Shabon it's the same point and he was such a big fan of this one of the reasons we actually ended up extracting it he was saying oh you've got to see this book I, I think Saunders is a fan of Shabon's novel as oh, well. is there a bit, but, but, is there a bit of but, but I, I, I think it's you know mutual, mutual respect for each other's work <laughs> rather than what was interesting about Moonglow is again that was a book about a fake memoir which itself sounds like it could become very postmodern and annoying and actually, he consciously took the stage to still tell a story, to still have heart and, and humour and the 
blood and carnality and all the things that fiction should contain rather than just being oh look how cute I am so there is a kind of parallel there with this. This is not a cute book. Actually. No, and it's a, it's a moving book as well. I mean, you know, the whole the whole image of, of, of this incredibly elevated figure in total distress over the loss of his son. And, it, and it, you know, as as you move through it, the, the, the jokes remain, but it becomes a very, very moving work. And, you you know, you need to work hard in order to, to, to get that emotion. And reimagining Lincoln's no easy thing, is it? Because of all the presidents there have ever been, he is, probably has one of the most overworked cultural images in, in terms of in terms of legacy hasn't he absolutely and, and Saunders completely deals with that in the book I mean even in the clip you heard you know no one could no one could decide whether he was you know <laughs> sort of sobbing <laughs> or actually you know an incredibly composed and in the in the sort of historical source material that he draws on there are endlessly conflicting accounts so yeah the entire book is a is a comment on you know how uh, there are different ways of looking at history and d- different uh, his history, the multifariousness of history, historiography. Well done. <laughs> God, that was not easy to <laughs> say. Historiography. Historiography, well there done. you go. Uh, well, listen, to listen to Sobey's full interview with Saunders and to hear the full extract, so if you read the paper and, and see the extract, we've got the whole audio extract to go with it. Go to the TLS website or expect Toby's interview wherever you get your podcasts. And I think that's about all... We have time for it this week, so thanks to Toby and to Jonathan Barnes for coming in and to George Saunders and Stephen Koppel for staying away. Remember to visit the-tls.co.uk for all sorts of free content, including this week's 20 questions with the wonderful Ursula Le Guin, who in answer to the question, Jane Austen or Charlotte Bronte, says, Oh, come on, that's like saying air or water. I prefer air in that uh, analogy, Thea. You can you can last longer without water probably than you can air. That's true. But I don't know which which you would go for in that. Oh, I'd, go I'd for say it. probably Austin is my air. Yeah, Austin's your air. Probably. Toby. Um, yeah. Who is your air, Austin or Bronte? <laughs> well, just to be just to be contrary. I'm going to go for uh, Bronte being my air. <laughs> and Austin, your water. Yeah. It's a complicated metaphor. Do uh, buy this week's paper, which is filled with good stuff. All 52 pages of it, including accounts of the lives of Eleanor Roosevelt and Catherine Mansfield, among very much more. Until next week, where we think we'll be talking about the wonderful Jonathan Swift from Thea and from me. Goodbye. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at UH1.com. 